So with that now, let us now turn to our passage for this morning. Pastor Bill will be continuing in our series in the Gospel of Mark, the sermon entitled Responding to God's Voice. Let me read this for us. It's Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Be reading from the ESV. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous man and a holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. So she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Good morning. If we've not yet had the privilege of meeting, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line. We are back in the book of Mark today for our Sunday morning teaching series. We took two weeks off. We're back today, and we come to kind of a strange story. Mark tells us in the very first sentence of his book that he's writing about the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and yet here we come to an account that doesn't include Jesus. It barely makes a reference to him. It's tangential at best. It's almost a case of mistaken identity. People think that Jesus might be John, and then the story dives into what's going on with John. It's not about Jesus. The issues here have nothing to do directly with Jesus' mission of bringing his kingdom to this earth. What is it? It's a story of sex and sensuality. More accurately, it's a story about ideas of sexuality, ideas of what you can and can't do with your body. Herod and Herodias have certain ideas of who you can be physically intimate with, and God has different ideas. Now let me back up and give you a little bit of the backstory here. Herod was initially married to someone else, and Herodias was as well. She's actually married to Herod's brother. But the two of them, Herod and Herodias, discovered that they had feelings for each other. 
really strong feelings, and Herod convinced Herodias to leave her husband. He left his wife, and the two of them got married. John the Baptist then comes to Herod, and he says to him, verse 18, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, John is referring to a passage in the law of God. It's in a book called Leviticus. And in that book, we read in chapter 18, verse 16, do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That's what Herod and Herodias have done. Herod has married his brother's wife. His brother's still alive. And this is something that God has clearly said, you shall not do. Now, if you read Leviticus chapter 18, you'll discover it's full of a lot of sexual expressions and relationships that God says are off limits, things we should not do. And he prefaces that chapter with an overarching reason for why you should not do those things, why these relationships are off limits. And it's a reason that we would struggle with, that we do struggle with in the modern world. What kind of reasons make sense to us? Well, something health-related wouldn't make sense, right? If you're going to curb our sexual freedom, then we need a good reason, like doing so would help combat disease or prevent genetic problems downstream, something like that. And God doesn't give anything that sounds like that as his reason. The reason he gives, verse 2, is, I am the Lord your God, period. Everything else that he says in that chapter is attached to his declaration that I am the Lord your God. The whole chapter of prohibitions of who you can and can't be physically intimate with is all attached to him and his nature. So when he says, do not have sexual relations with so-and-so, it's because I am the Lord your God, it's because I said so. Or when he says a certain practice is dishonorable or detestable or perverse, the implication is that he's the one who gets to define what is honorable, what is respectable, and what's virtuous. And this is hard for us as modern people because what? We, we want reasons. We want reasons that we can independently verify, reasons that we can say, yeah, we agree with that. And on the surface of it, it doesn't look like God gives us one of those. Sure, he says, verse 5, this is where life is found. But the immediate question then is, why do you get to decide where life is found? Why should we believe that? What's the reason? There are some cases in that long list in Leviticus 18 that we could make a case for. Okay, if you marry a close relative, that's going to damage the gene pool. We get that. We can see the logic there. But God never references that as the logic or the reason. And he talks in chapter 18 about a number of relationships that don't have anything to do with a close relative. They're with a neighbor's spouse, or they're with someone of the same sex, or in the case of Herod and Herodias, with the spouse of a relative. They are with people who it would be really easy to be attracted to, really easy to love, really easy to want to express your love to in as physical and intimate a way as possible, relationships that make you feel like that's where life really is to be found. And God says, you can't. And if you ask why, the thing that he says is, I am the Lord your God. It's a little bit like what he said to Adam and Eve, isn't it? He told them not to eat from one of the trees in the Garden of Eden, and he didn't give them a reason for why they should listen to him. That he didn't give them a reason that they could agree with 
independently from him, something that they could think about apart from just taking his word for it, something that they could evaluate without any reference to him, evaluate on its own merits, and then having arrived at their own conclusion, you say, you know, I think God is on to something here. I agree with his reasoning, and therefore, I'm going to do what he said. God doesn't give you that opportunity. Because if he had, then Adam and Eve would not have listened to him because they trusted him. They would not have trusted that he loved them and wanted what was best for them. Trusted his heart for them. That having given them life, having given them everything that they needed for life, that he could be trusted to only give them what was best for them. Trusting that that was always his heart for them. In everything he told them, regardless of whether they could rationally figure it out or not. And by not giving them a reason, God really did what? He gave them a choice. They could either embrace what he said because they trusted him, because they trusted that what he wanted was best for them, or they could reject what he said because they trusted themselves to give what was best to them. That thing that you see in the Garden of Eden is the same thing that you see later in Leviticus 18. You can either accept God's authority in how you express your sexuality, you accept that since he made you and loves you, that he knows what will give you the best life that you possibly can have. You can either accept that, or you can decide no. I know better what will give me the best life, even if it disagrees with God. In other words, what you're seeing is a clash of worldviews. A clash that is being played out around the particular issue of sexuality. And make sure that you understand this. It is not a clash over a particular expression of sexuality, not a particular instance. It's not that some people are saying, well, this one kind of sexual expression is okay, while other people are saying, I don't, I don't really like that kind, and so therefore the clash is over this one issue. The clash is of a much broader issue. It goes across all of these, and it says, who has the right to tell me what I can and can't do with my body? The clash of worldviews is between one view that says there is an external authority over all of us. He has the right. And it's versus the viewpoint that says we are each our own authority over our own lives. We individually have the right. That's the clash in the Garden of Eden that reappears in Leviticus 18 that you see in Mark chapter 6. Herod and Herodias have argued that it's my body, I can do what I want with my own body, and nobody can tell me differently. And God, through his prophet, essentially is saying to them, you did not give your body to you. I did. And therefore, I reserve to myself the right to tell you how you can use your body and how you can't. And what you have done, Herod and Herodias, in marrying each other is not in accordance with the way that I made the world to be. It's not according to my law. What you have done is not lawful. And so the root issue that the entire passage for today revolves around is God's authority. And specifically with rejecting what God says and rejecting how he's told us to live. 
which if you've been with us through Mark chapter 6, you realize that's the theme in Mark chapter 6. Mark 6 opens with Jesus teaching in his hometown, and people are amazed at him. But the longer that they think about him, the less like a Messiah he actually looks, and they take offense at him. And they end up wanting nothing to do with him, and so they reject him, even as he brings them the word of God. Very next section is when Jesus sends out his 12 apostles, and he sends them out so that they would preach that people should repent. It's the same message that Jesus himself was bringing, and he tells his guys, look, you need to get ready because people are going to reject you as well. We then are set up in this last section, a passage that on the surface is about John the Baptist, but it's a passage where you hardly see him. He delivers his message, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife, and then he recedes into the background. Herod, Herodias, and her daughter all come up front and center. They're the primary actors. They're the ones who are doing things. John is mostly just having things done to him. And what is front and center then are people who don't listen to what he's had to say. More accurately, they're not listening to the message of the word of God that he brings to them. And it all has the setup of a morality tale of a story that says, here are people who don't listen to God's word, now watch all the bad things that happen to them. You don't want that to happen to you, right? So what? learn to listen to the word of God. That it's all set up to teach you a moral. But it's not a morality tale. It's not what you expect to hear. You expect to hear how their bad decision ruined their lives. Mark could have written it that way. When Herod jilted his former wife, he actually brought the wrath of another nation down on his own nation. She was from another country, and that country was very offended when he left her. And so they attacked Israel. It was a direct result of Herod's decision to leave her. But Mark doesn't tell you that. And he doesn't tell you that because he's not telling you a morality tale. Here's the right way to live and act, therefore, get in line. Mark doesn't tell you that because he wants you to pay attention to other things that are much more important. That's what we're going to look at today. I'm going to put them in three categories to make it a little bit easier for us to keep track of them. First, we're going to look at how God responds to people who ignore what he says. Second, we'll look at typical ways that the world responds to God and to his response. And then third, we'll think about the end result that that response has. So how God responds to people who ignore him, how the world responds back to God, and what comes out of that response. First, how does God respond to people who ignore him? There are two popular conceptions of how God deals with people who disobey him, who ignore what he says. On the one side, people think that God can hardly hold himself back, that he is so frustrated and so upset with the world and with people, it just keeps building up inside of him until he's ready to explode. He's sitting there in heaven waiting to drop the hammer on someone so when they give him the opportunity, he takes it. One popular misconception of God. On the other hand, people think that God is not especially concerned about what they do. 
Sure, he said some things that they should do, and he said them rather strongly, but when it comes right down to it, he just sort of, he winks at you if you're not inclined to obey. He says, don't worry about it, it's not a big deal. You go ahead, you do whatever you want, and I'll come along, I'll clean up the mess for you. Notice here in Mark 6 that God does neither one of those. Herod and Herodias have broken his law. They've rejected what he has to say because of what they want to do. And God does hold them accountable for what they've done, but he doesn't race to destroy them. Instead, he does something incredibly gracious. He sends them a prophet. God called John initially to go to Israel to make everybody ready for God's own arrival. God gave John the mission of calling his people to repent of their sins. And now here's John come to the king. He's the prophet of God, directed by God. This is God's initiative. He comes to the king with the same message that he's been taking to all of Israel. He tells the king that what Herod has done is wrong, that Herod has sinned, and the implication then is that Herod, just like the rest of Israel, needs to repent. That it's not okay to keep doing what you're doing, but something needs to change, and Herod needs to get himself ready for God's arrival. Now what is that? That's a God who does not want to destroy people. That's a God who wants to save people, to rescue them. And God's level of concern is so great that John doesn't talk to Herod just once. Verse 18, John had been saying to Herod. Had been saying is a verb that is in the imperfect active tense. What's that mean? It means it's not a one-time event, but that it's something that has happened frequently or it's happened over a period of time. This is not a one-time conversation. This is one where God through John, has been bringing this issue up over and over and over again. Which means what? It means that Herod has been blowing off this conversation over and over and over again. And yet John keeps going. This is really important to God. And make sure you understand this. These were not new thoughts from God. His thoughts on this topic were already out there. He already wrote about this in Leviticus 18. It would have been very easy for Herod to get a copy of Scripture, to read for himself what he should and shouldn't do. God had already said this. Herod should have known, and God sends his messenger to him anyway. And he sends John in such a way that there's a relationship. John does not scribble this message on the side of the palace walls. Instead, he had been saying to him, there's a connection here between the prophet and the king, something personal. So God sent his personal messenger to Herod to tell Herod what Herod should have already known, to remind him of it repeatedly, and to do so in the context of a personal relationship. What is all of that? That's grace. Completely unnecessary favor from God. It's God's response to people like you and me when we reject his authority, when we reject the things that we really already ought to know. God is not harsh, but he's not apathetic. He does act, and he does so because he wants us back. So in your life, be very careful. 
when God sends someone to you to speak his word, when he challenges you, calls you out, convicts you of an area where you're sinning, when God does that, it's not because he's mean, not because he wants to put a guilt trip on you. It's because he cares about you and he actually wants something better for you. It's because you can't just keep doing what you're doing and hope for the best. It's because he knows there are going to be huge consequences for you if you keep on going down this road. And what is it when someone wants to help you avoid the bad stuff that you have set yourself up to receive? When they want what's best for you, especially when you've blown them off already. What is that? It's grace. It's complete and total undeserved kindness. So when you get a messenger from the Lord, it doesn't matter who that messenger is. It might be your friend. It might be your spouse. It might be your child coming to you. It might be that irritating person in your small group. It doesn't matter who that is. When that person comes to you, don't ignore them. Don't ignore God's messengers to you. Don't keep rejecting his word to you. That's point one, how God responds to people who replace his authority with their own. He responds with grace. Is it unnecessary? Absolutely. It's what he does because that's who he is. And in that moment, what is he doing? He's giving you another reason to trust him when he tells you to do something you don't want to do. You realize, man, if God has this kind of concern for me, maybe what he tells me, as hard as that's going to be, maybe what he tells me is really in my best interest. That's point one. Point two, how does the world respond typically to this gracious God who won't let them be comfortable with ignoring him? And the first thing that we have to see here is that the world does not have just one look. It's wrong to typecast the world and to say, well, everybody's like this in their response. Instead, you're offered here three very different takes on how people respond to God more specifically on how they respond to his word. And remember, again, that's what the real issue is here. Yes, people are responding to John, but the only reason that they're responding to John is because John is bringing them God's word. It's the only reason that he's in their orbit. Otherwise, they would not be interacting with him. John is the physical embodiment of the word of God. And so the way that they treat him the way that they treat God's messenger, is the way that they treat God's word and the way that they treat God's authority. And what you see here are three different responses. Herod Herodias and his daughter, I'm sorry, her daughter, all get roughly the same amount of airtime. Camera keeps shifting from one to the other to the next. And as it does so, what is it doing? It's highlighting their different responses. We'll start with Herod. Herod is somewhat sympathetic to God's word. Not personally antagonistic toward John, but verse 17, he only put John in prison for the sake of Herodias. Personally, verse 20, Herod feared John. That means he respected him. He knew that John was a righteous and a holy man. He was puzzled when he heard John speak, confused, had trouble understanding what John was saying, but he heard him gladly. He liked listening to him. He liked listening to him, but he didn't do any of the things that John said. He didn't act on what John told him. He was sympathetic to hearing, but he remained unchanged. Herodias, however, was a different story. She was antagonistic. 
She heard God speak to her very clearly through John, call her out. In verse 19, she held a grudge against him, one to him put to death. She didn't like that he exposed her. But it's more than dislike. Sure, she's convicted, but she has other alternatives. She could repent, or like her husband, Herod, she could ignore what God said, but she can't. There's something inside of her that just rankles so badly. She's angry at being exposed. And she wants to hurt someone bad. She wants to kill John. You hear some of the theme from last week, right? Of how a life lived apart from God leaves you living in the realm of death, leaves you living with a lifestyle of death. She wanted nothing to do with what God had said, and her solution then is what? It's get rid of God's messenger, to never have to see him, hear him, or deal with him ever again. She wants to do something that's out of all proportion to what's being said. This is very important for us this morning, for you and me, because we live in a world that feels fairly comfortable to us most of the time. It seems willing in general to tolerate us, to tolerate our faith as we try to live according to what God says. Herodias helps us understand that that tolerance with some people is a very thin veneer, especially when we call out evil for what it is. Evil hates being exposed, and evil will fight back. Not everyone will do so all the time. The world doesn't have just one response. We've already said that. But don't let the Herods of the world blind you to the fact that there are Herodiases, people who hate just as strongly today and just as unreasonably as they did 2,000 years ago people who are just as willing and just as determined today to use all the power that they have to make sure that they never have to deal with God's word again and are very, very willing not to have to deal with God's people and his messengers ever again. And I'm concerned today, even as I say that, why? We're sitting in an air-conditioned building. We're comfortable. We're sitting in the Philadelphia suburbs. We're allowed to come together, it's not against the laws of this country, to gather openly. And my concern is that some of us are just not going to be able to bring ourselves to believe that. To believe that this world really is that bad at times. I debated, what am I going to do here with this section? Because I can't just go on and have you not think and feel some of the weight of this. I'm not going to share anybody's personal stories. I wish you could listen to the people that I get to talk with. People who are absolutely shocked, Christians who are absolutely shocked to learn that someone in their family, their, in their lives, has set out to ruin them, to destroy them in everything that they have built when they've done nothing wrong. People who experience pure, unleashed hatred, or people who are forced to deal with systems of thoughts and ideas and control at work or in school that directly challenge their faith and that directly challenge what God has said we should do in his word. I get to talk with people who are God's people who now have to believe that God will somehow bring good out of the mess that they're left holding. You and I will be blindsided in this world if we pretend that there are no Herodiases, 
if we pretend that everybody's going to be happy just to ignore us, to ignore our faith, that they're going to be happy that we hold to a God who challenges them and challenges their autonomy, their belief that they are the highest authority in their own lives. Some people, they can just ignore God when he speaks. There are others who feel a need to destroy those who hold on to and speak God's words. There are Herods in this world. There are also Herodiases. There are also opportunists, people who don't have any strong feelings either for or against God, who really don't care one way or the other, but who see the chance to use God, to use his messengers to further their own aims. People like Herodias' daughter. We're not told how she felt about what John was saying, but we are told that when she asked her mother what she should ask for, it didn't shock her to hear that she should ask for John's head. Didn't shock her, and she didn't refuse. Instead, verse 25, she went immediately with haste to the king to ask for John's head. She even throws in her own twist there, adding she wants it on a platter. Probably her way of mocking the banquet where everybody was. She had no personal stake in the outcome. John was not talking to her. But she saw John as an opportunity, a stepping stone to something that she wanted. And so she used him, she used his death, to cement her position with her mother by advancing her mother's agenda. For her, it was what? It was calculated. It was political. She used one of God's people to advance herself, something else that you see in this modern world as well, people who use God's people to advance their own ambitions. Three different reactions to the word of God, sympathetic, antagonistic, and opportunistic. Three different reactions, all with one common underlying theme. And that is that none of the three embraced what God had to say. In their own unique ways, each one rejected God and his word. Ignore it, hate it, bend it to their own interests. None of them took his word in like God intended them to. And as Mark shows you, these three people who reject God's word in the context of this larger chapter of rejection, what is he doing? He's giving you a feel, a flavor of what rejecting the word of God looks like. Here's what it looks like on the ground in the everyday life. And as he's doing that, what he's really doing is he's asking you and he's asking me, how about you? How are you responding to the word of God when it comes to you? Do you see yourself in these rejectors? Do you see yourself responding to God's word like they do? Do you find yourself happy enough to read scripture or listen to friends talk about spiritual things, happy enough to come to church, happy enough to go to youth group, community group? But then when you close your Bible and you walk away, God's word really has no impact on what you do in the rest of the day. You listen to it gladly enough, but it hasn't changed anything about you. You didn't take it in like God intended you to. Or maybe you do your best to avoid reading scripture or having spiritual conversations. You feel guilty, you feel dirty every single time. God keeps putting his finger on that same thing and you don't like that feeling. So you go out of your way not to hear God speak. You silence him 
the best that you can. Or maybe you find yourself interested in church or Bible studies because they help you with some other agenda. Maybe they give you a sense of community, a sense of belonging. You don't really love all the God talk, but you can put up with that in order to have what you really want. Or maybe worse, are you even aware that God is trying to talk to you? That he has something to say to you? That he wants to address you personally? Can you remember the last time when the word of God convicted you? When it was more than an academic study, when it was more than just your religious duty so that you could get that done and then get on with the rest of what you wanted to do that day? Can you recall the last person that God sent to you that spoke his word into your life, that, that, that really brought it to a, to a sharp point, made it come alive for you? It'd be really bad, right, to have John the Baptist talking to you but be oblivious that God was trying to say anything to you? It's really easy to do that. Really easy to harden your heart so that you're not even aware that God is saying anything. That you read the scripture, very easy to do this, but never seems to say anything to you, doesn't confront you, doesn't challenge you, doesn't call you out. I have those times in my life. When I have those times, they make me really nervous. Because you think, how can that be? I know that I'm not just like Christ in every way. I don't see the world the way he does. I don't do the things that I'm supposed to be doing. I know that I have tons of things that I need to hear from him, things that I need to change. But if I'm not hearing him, not spending time in Scripture, not being challenged by him, if I'm ignoring the people that he sends to me, what does that mean? It means that I have to ask the question, is there any real difference between me and this ancient Herodian court? These people who rejected God in so many unique different ways and what he had to say. So point one, God responds graciously to people who reject his authority. Point two, there are a lot of ways to continue rejecting him, which brings us to point three, all of those ways end up really badly. One of the fiercest ironies of this story is the mismatch between its setting and its outcome. It's a birthday celebration. It's Herod's birthday. It's a birthday party. It's a celebration of life that ends in death. It's a party that ruins life. Why is that? It's because the Word of God is life. Obeying what God says, keeping in step with him, that is what brings life. Anything that deviates from what he says can't bring life. And you don't have to go through fancy theological gymnastics to understand that. Because God has said it very plainly in his word. God doesn't try to hide things from us. We're not playing hide and seek. He gives us full disclosure. And so back in the book of Deuteronomy... Chapter 32, after an entire book of the law, he gives this command, verse 46, that you are to take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. Here's the point. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. 
And by this word you shall live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. Where is life found? It's in the word of God. His word is what leads you to life. It shows you what life is and what it isn't. God is not randomly asserting his authority to keep you from enjoying yourself. He's trying his hardest to tell you, life is over here, live here. And so if you reject his word, what are you doing? You're rejecting everything that has to do with life. You're rejecting love. You're rejecting joy. You're rejecting peace. You're rejecting comfort. You're rejecting health, beauty, all the things that make life worth living. Will your rejection always end up with the literal death of someone at your party? Of course not. But it will always end up undermining the thing that you were hoping to find life in. You can't have life if you cut the Word of God out of your life. It's God himself who gave you life. Ignoring what he has to say can't give you life. That's how things end badly in the outside world when you cut God out of your life. There's another danger, however, and this one's an internal danger. It's even more devastating. Herod played around with God's word, but didn't take it seriously. He harbored his broken sexuality, clung to it, and he discovered that when you hardened your heart in one area, you end up hardening it in a whole lot of areas. Verse 26, Herod was exceedingly sorry, greatly distressed when the girl asked for John's head. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word. What is it when you stubbornly decide to do something that you know is wrong? And the reason that you do it anyway is because you're afraid of what other people might think if you don't do it. It's what we call pride, right? Herod was proud. He was too proud to back down and admit that he had made a mistake. When God spoke to him earlier about his sexual immorality, Herod hardened his heart in that area, only to discover that his heart is now hard in other areas as well. So hard that he's able to murder someone who never did anything wrong. It's a hardness that grew, but it was a hardness that kept getting worse. Mark doesn't record this, but the author of the Gospel of Luke in the chapter 23 of his book tells us that when Jesus is arrested, Pilate, Roman governor, Pilate sends him to Herod. Herod's very happy about that because for a long time he'd been wanting to see Jesus. He was hoping that Jesus would do some kind of miracle, and so he asked Jesus lots of questions. And Jesus, verse 9, answered exactly none of them gave Herod no answer. Herod's true nature came out. He mocked Jesus, made fun of him, sent him back to Pilate to be killed. Get the connection here. Herod rejected the word of God when it came to him through John the Baptist. And then later, when Jesus stood in front of him, the word of God made flesh. When Jesus stood in front of him, the living embodiment of God's word, Herod rejected him as well. He'd had no interest in hearing God's word throughout his life, which meant that he could not have any interest in Jesus when he was standing face to face with him. Don't miss this, however, because God is not passive. 
He's not just standing by, taking whatever Herod gives him. Herod rejected his word. He rejected God's word, rejected God's word, rejected God's word, until what? Until God rejected Herod. Until God finally gave up. Just stopped talking to him. Here's the warning in this passage. Refuse to listen to God when he is doing his best to try to talk to you. Keep telling God that you want nothing to do with him. And God will eventually say to you, okay. Okay. You don't want to hear me, I get it. I'll give you what you want. I will no longer trouble you with the sound of my voice. There's amazing grace in this story. God speaks repeatedly to people who reject his words, who want nothing to do with him. There is amazing stupidity in this story. Keep ignoring God when he speaks to you. Keep teaching yourself that his words are not all that important. Keep teaching yourself not to listen. And one day you'll discover that you can no longer hear God. There'll be a day when you find that God and the things of God, they just don't hold any real interest for you. Now, how do you know this morning if that's where you are? How do you know if you've already walked all the way down the road of Herod? Let me ask you this question. Does it bother you? Does it bother you that you might have? Does it bother you even to be on that road? It didn't bother Herod. What does that mean? It means if it bothers you, you are not in the same place where Herod was. It's a good thing. It means that your heart is not hardened like his. So then what do you do? It's really very simple. You talk to Jesus. He longs to talk with you. He's been trying to talk with you. He is much more interested in talking with you than you are interested in listening to him. So talk with him. Talk with him about how you've not been hearing him for whatever reason. Tell him that you do want to hear him that you don't want to reject him, you don't want to reject what he has to say, you don't want to ignore him. Tell him you don't want to walk away from him. Tell him that and then trust him. Trust that what he did on the cross was enough to deal with every single time that you and I have ignored him. Every time that we have chosen death over life. Even one of those times is enough to cut us off from life, to cut us off from his words that bring life. But Jesus came to be rejected for every time that his people rejected him. Jesus came constantly listening to God, always choosing life over death, never once swerving from life, clinging tightly to everything that God had said, always embraced God's word, so that he could rescue his people from the death that we all chose for ourselves. He drank God's words in. Words that should have brought him life, but words instead that brought him death. Words that ended in him being rejected because that's also in the word of God. That the Messiah would be rejected for the sake of his people. We'll see in a couple weeks that Jesus knew that. He read it, he believed it, he lived it, and he never deviated from it, even when he saw it graphically laid out in front of him. 
And that's how this account fits into the gospel, into the good news of Jesus Christ, because it tells us what will happen to Jesus. John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah, both in his life and in his death. And so as Jesus would later hear the account of John's death, it would underline for him that it pointed to his own. He would see it fitting into what Scripture had said about him, that there was a time coming when another ruler, Pilate, would not want to kill the prophet Jesus, the Messiah, standing in front of him. This other ruler would try to save the prophet's life, but the ruler would not be strong enough. Politics of his day would pressure him and overwhelm him until he ordered the death of this prophet. This prophet Jesus who would be killed and then placed in a tomb. Jesus knew that his death was coming. He read it in the word of God. He saw it visually laid out in front of him and he didn't reject that future. Instead, he went forward. Why? For your sake. He was willing to be forsaken by the Father on the cross, rejected by God for every time you and I have rejected him so that the Father would never reject you, so that you would have a heart that is open to hearing God, so that you would want to listen to him, so that you would want the words of God to form and cause life inside of you. Lord Jesus, thank you. Lord, we are people who are in desperate need of hearing your word. Lord, speak to us. Speak to each one here. Lord God, bring your conviction of places where we have not been listening, places where we need to wrestle with you. Bring your conviction, Lord, but also bring your mercy. Give us confidence that if we will, as we read earlier, confess those places to you, that you will forgive. Lord, that you will set us on the road of life. Lord, that you will not reject us, you will not abandon us. Give us that kind of confidence, Lord, as we sing to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's rise together in response to the word. As we see and have just heard about uh, Jesus, the word of God was rejected by man. May we believe and trust.